Amen. Uh, listen, kiddos, you're dismissed off to class. Uh, as you turn to Luke chapter 1, which is where we'll be this morning, I just want to draw attention to the fact that I'm looking around and seeing several people sitting alone because their significant other is driving right now up to Chico Paradise area. We have about 18 from our church that left at 8 o'clock this morning to go help um, pass out and distribute things to the fire victims up there. Uh, such an exciting picture. Kelly texted me a picture, I think Friday night, just like overwhelmed at the generosity of Neighborhood Bible Church. Uh, ben in Kelly's office was just chock full of stuff that got crammed into two Suburbans. Um, so they will be all day today just handing out all kinds of uh, stuff to people that, that need things up there. Uh, many of you, like me, have very close personal friends who were deeply impacted by this. Um, and so what a thrill to, to have some of our uh, church body off and, and with them. So be praying for them, thinking of them, listen for their stories when they come back and, uh, and check in with them. Also just wanted to say, if you missed it yesterday, we had an amazing Christmas party uh, in this building. This place looks very different right now than it did 24 hours ago. Um, just an incredible time uh, of bringing all three of our services together. I actually had a neat story of some people that just had no idea who the other person was, and yet they come to our church every Sunday. Um, in our church, this is unique. They both spoke the same language even. Uh, there's no reason they shouldn't have known each other, but this gave occasion for people to come together, so it was awesome. Um, thank you for everyone who contributed and, and made that happen. All right, uh, this is a really difficult image to see on the screen, uh, and I recognize that, and you're just going to have to squint and focus and, and, and concentrate, but it was on your bulletin last week, it's, it's going to be splashed sort of this whole time through Luke, and what I want to do is I want to, <clears throat> I want to let our title image be sort of a box top. Right over here, there was a handful of you, some of you were here this morning, that were, it's sort of the, it was the, it was the table for either practicing patience because you have an abundance of it or learning patience because you lack it. It's called puzzles. And it was the puzzle table. There's a thousand piece puzzle over here. I lasted 10 seconds of watching other people put puzzles together because the paint drying station was more exciting. And so I went, I went and watched paint dry. I'm kidding. Um, but when you're putting a, a, a puzzle together, there's always a box top that you keep referencing back to. And it's actually interesting. I already had this written in my sermon. I watched them pass the box top around. Our sermon title is a little bit like the box top for Luke. So as we get working and kind of zooming in on this one little part of Luke, that we would keep pulling back and saying, why did Luke write this? And what are some of the big themes and, and all of that? So we don't get lost uh, in the minutia of things. So Luke's profession, the good doctor is what I'm calling this series. It's a little just nod to Luke's profession. He was a doctor. So that certainly there's a lens that God uses the personality of individuals to write scripture. Although it's God breathed, he uses individual personalities. So he didn't take the pen and write it, he used individuals. And Luke being a doctor, certainly there's a certain lens to his gospel that, that comes through. But the good doctor refers to the, the, the center of what the story's about. Um, to say that Luke is about Jesus is like saying that, you know, meat is an option at, at Armadillo Willie's. Uh, it's not just an option. It is, like, that's why you go to Armadillo Willie's. You know, like, not a lot of people that go there because they're vegan and they just love the smell of roasting beef. So the good doctor refers to, to Jesus Christ, but there's a little nod to, to remember who's, who's writing this. One of the beauties about this is, 
And we'll see this written in Luke. It's a powerful testimony. It's true then, it's true today, and that is this. The good news is both for the vulnerable of society and the valued of society. It's powerful to think about Luke as a doctor and say that here is someone who's valued in society, upwardly mobile, catch this, and still poor in spirit. Sometimes we get the message, we so proclaim that Jesus had fishermen and commoners following him that we might tend to think that if you're in the ruling class, if you have things going well, if you have your health, there's really no need for Jesus. Or it's impossibly poor in spirit. Luke, the doctor, says not so. Luke, the doctor, says it's possibly poor in spirit um, and be considered a valuable part of society. So just taking a look at the word good for a moment, this refers, uh, refers to his character. Uh, with your finger in Luke 1, or just skip over, you go, go to Luke 18. I want to show you two very key verses, very simple to remember verses, that when you hear the word good and you hear the word doctor, here's what I want you to catch. I want you to catch the character of Jesus and the work of Jesus. So good refers to the character of Jesus. Luke chapter 18, verse 19 And we're going to get to this in many weeks. But Jesus is answering someone who has come and approached him and said, Good teacher. You remember this story probably. And here's Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him in Luke 18, 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now notice the nuance of this. Does Jesus say, I'm not good, don't call me good? Does he say that? Of course not. So he doesn't deny that he is a good teacher. But what he's saying is that title belongs to God alone. Jesus made several statements all through Luke's gospel, all through Matthew, Mark, and John as well, that ultimately got him killed. Why? Because he said in unmistakable and a variety of ways... What you are seeing in the flesh is Emmanuel, God with you. I am God. I am the holy living God. And ultimately, that's what, what, from a human perspective, that's what got Jesus killed. So I want you to watch as we go through this, the good doctor. I want you to watch for the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just that he... He displays moments of goodness on his best days. It's that goodness emanates from him in everything he does. In everything that he says. He embodies goodness. We can display God-like traits. Isn't that true? Yeah, even the worst of us in here. You just walking in here, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, the way you fit together, the way your eyes refract light and see things and interpret things. you're, You're a walking display of some of the goodness of God. But let's be honest, we don't emanate goodness all the time. You can nod at that one, because I, I know it's true. We, we don't emanate goodness all the time. Why? Because we're not God. Jesus embodies and emanates goodness. This is Luke's point, that he is, in fact, God. The other thing that's really hard to see on this, although it actually makes it a little bit easier. I want to get back where, where, where you guys see it. Um, built into the word good is the word God. Right, three letters that were just a little bit uh, shaded, a little bit darker. Um, and here's the point of that: once you see it, like if you have eyes to see, you see the word God in our title—that Jesus is God. 
If you stop and just have eyes to see, you can see that Luke is making this, this point unmistakably clear. And once you hear it and see it, you can't unsee it. That Jesus is God. He's making that point. This is sort of like the kingdom of God. In fact, we'll see this over and over with Jesus. We already know this as we sort of flash through thoughts and scenes of Jesus. That the kingdom of God is all around. But there are people who just completely miss it. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear it. It's actually right there in front of them. But, but, they're, but they're looking through a veil. They're, they're looking through a, a, a way that they just sort of overlook it. All right, let's move on to the word doctor. Doctor refers to his work. If you look at Jesus' life, you could say he almost seemed like this wandering rabbi around a country, but it's a little bit like the, the Candyland board. If, if you look at the Candyland board, if, if you were to just follow that square at a time, it would feel like you're going through, you know, lollipop forest and whatever. You can tell I have young kids. Uh, you know, just these different things. It feels meandering, but there is a point, right? If you pull back and look at it, you go, oh yeah, there's definitely a destination to this thing. Jesus, if you just sort of tracked him via GPS all around, you'd go, this guy mostly sort of wandered around to places and whatnot. But what you're going to see in, in, in Luke's gospel is this, this ever-narrowing sort of destination of Jerusalem. And this time frame that's kind of moving toward a definitive work. Jesus had a plan. Jesus was on a mission. Jesus was given an assignment. And he's going to complete it. When you think of the word doctor, turn a page over or so to Luke 19.10. I think if I could pick one verse out of all of Luke for our box top, it would be this. Jesus says of himself, the son of man, one of his favorite terms, we'll get to some of those titles later. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus knew why he was here. Jesus knew what he was about. He was not wandering candy land. He was on a mission. And he fulfilled it. When you think of doctor, <clears throat> you think of the different things about doctor, there's a few things I just want to highlight. One is this, that even a casual reading of the four Gospels leaves people who are devoted to Jesus in utter trust and faith and the total skeptic that thinks there's, there's a bunch of made-up stuff around Jesus. So it leaves both the devoted and the skeptic utterly amazed at the wisdom and handling that Jesus has in life and situations. So much so that people actually today regularly offer up pithy, quotable little statements of Jesus as a balm to some pain, as wisdom, as advice for some hardship, many times without knowing who they're quoting. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're like, that person's quoting Jesus. I don't even know if they know that that's Jesus that they're quoting. Or that logic, that principle, that's a biblical principle. I could go to chapter and verse and preach a sermon right now. I don't think they even know that. This happens all the time. But here's what I want to show you about Jesus. Just like a doctor. So he doesn't go around just doing nice doctor things. Just like a real doctor, he does real doctor work. Real doctor work uh, is that there's some pain involved. There's some real hardship. In fact, it's unpopular, it turns out, to seek and save the lost. Have you noticed this? The lost often don't want to be found. They don't want to be sought out. When you shine light in a dark place, 
many scurry, and the ones that don't, they have the, the flight reflex. They want to, the other ones want to turn and fight you to get the light off of them. You know how we know this? Because we've been there. Maybe we are there right now. Some of you might get mad at me today in church. It could be that light is just being exposed in a dark place. So Jesus does real doc- doctor work. He's not just a, a kindly doctor figure. As we go through Luke, what we're going to see this. There are things that are said and done that actually feel counterproductive. If you don't have an understanding of the human body, then to go in, take a knife, and slice someone open down the chest of someone that you love and you're observing this seems counterproductive, does it not? Utterly shocking, even to those of us who have some general sense of what goes on, I think to stand there and watch it. That's why in the movies and in real life, they get the loved ones out of there. You're not going to want to see what we're going to do to your wife's body right now. Because it's going to make you freak out. It's going to look counterproductive. Without an understanding of how all the systems down to a cell level fit together, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, the things Jesus says and does looks counterproductive. How can letting that person continue to bleed uh, help that person out? How can slicing that person open and digging around in their chest cavity be good for them? You're making it worse. We're going to see that as we read through, and it's going to hit us because we've been there. One more thought about this title that I want you to consider. <clears throat> some of you know this at a really intimate level, and some of it, it's, it's a little bit more out there right now. But doctors require faith. Is that true? A doctor comes to you and says, here, take this pill. It's going to be good for you. You have a choice to make in that matter. You can cooperate and go along, or, or you can't. Every doctor you have ever trusted has had this relationship on incomplete information. Some of you have a doctor. In fact, uh, I, I was with someone this week, and a, a doctor that's been with this guy for a really long time came walking into the room while I was there, and mid-sentence, he stopped what he was saying, and his eye, he just went like this, because what he recognized was a doctor that has understood my unique problem for years and years and years and years over multiple locations just walked into the room and maybe can help give some answers as to why I'm lying flat on my back. That trust was built up over years, right? So here's what's going to go on with Jesus. Jesus puts out an invitation to to follow him. And much like a doctor, there is a response on our part that's not just theoretical. It's not theoretical, uh, just a Sunday morning thing to trust Jesus. Here's what I want to show you. We do this all the time with the most intimate part of ourselves, with our bodies. We have to give trust um, in these situations. Faith is required. Faith is not anti-rational, and yet it isn't airtight. This is true of Jesus. He invites followers to come. Some drop what they're doing and follow in an instant, and some it takes a, a bit longer time. We have the role to trust or to not trust, to accept or not to accept. Let me go to the tagline of our, of our, uh, of our title this morning. Uh, hopeful healing for all. Hopeful healing is this idea that God initiates, He sets in motion His salvation plan. 
If you take all three of the other Gospels and count up how many times the word salvation is used, collectively, those guys use it once. Luke uses it several times, and it's sort of sprinkled throughout his Gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 1, we looked at last week, but he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us..." And some of your translations say uh, about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Why didn't he just say, these are the things that happened among us? He chose the word carefully because God set in motion a plan. There's a mover behind the movement in Luke. He's not just reporting current events. Hey, let me just tell you an accurate picture of what happened among us. He says, let me show you the things that have been accomplished among us. Prophecy is a little bit for sports freaks, like calling a shot. What, what God does in, in, in the Gospels and as we see it sort of played out as this. Some of you are hockey fans. You remember the last time the Sharks hosted the All-Star game. Okay, it was years and years and years ago. Sharks are hosting it again this year. The hometown guy, Owen Nolan, is on a breakaway. He doesn't just call a shot, which in hockey is unheard of. He comes down and calls a shot. He points to the upper corner in the All-Star game where he's the representative of the hometown and he makes the shot! So... God calling the shot is, is, I mean, and the crowd went berserk. I'm still thinking about it all these years later because it's just one of the great things in sports where he calls the shot and makes it. And, and prophet, it's, it's kind of getting our head around it. Prophecy is a little bit like that, but, but on a much grander scale. It's not just calling the shot like I'm going to score in this game. It's I'm going to score, and by the way, it's going to be upper in that, in that corner right there. So that's what happens and that's what we see uh, that, that God delivers. After he promises, he delivers in spectacular fashion. These words for all is really intentional also. If you take the four gospels, what you have is sort of different angles and layers. And for all means this. Luke is by far the most universal gospel. It's the most wide open to the most amount of people. There was a famous Gentile once called Goldilocks. Have you heard of her? Okay, she was a non-Jew, and, and Goldilocks, the, the Gentile, would have said this, that Matthew is too Jewish. She would have thought that Mark was too dark. There's so much suffering in Mark. And John is just too theological and wordy. But Luke, Luke is just right. Why does Luke get this right? Because he is an outsider. Remember? He's writing about his Lord and Savior, who's an insider, who's a Jew, who's of the working class. And what's Luke? He's a Gentile. He's a non-eyewitness. He's a latecomer to the story. He's of the, he's of the sort of white-collar class. Yet he's writing about his Lord. So he gets it, and he keeps pointing this out. Who's on the outside specifically? Let me give you a few categories. Women. Women in this culture were not esteemed and valued like they are here. Uh, and so over and over this morning, we're going to see this. Who's on the cover of your bulletin? Two women. Over and over, Luke's going to go to great pains to show this love, notice, care, and use of the people that particularly in that culture would have been the furthest from people's minds as who God would use. So women... Children is another category. Sinners and foreigners. 
In fact, here's what I want you to watch for. It's not just that Luke highlights how the outsiders get used. There's actually this great reversal that goes on. That those who we think are a shoo-in for God's kingdom aren't even in the family. Those who seem closest and like for sure they're in aren't even in. And those who would think there's no possible way that God could ever love them, that God could ever use them, that God even sees them, that they would ever respond to the things of God. And we find them in and close. Jesus said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Watch for this sort of great reversal that goes on. We're going to see it, uh, hints of it today in our text. Let me tell you this. This is not just going to be weeks and weeks of historical lectures. That's not what we're doing here on a Sunday morning. As we read the Gospel of Luke, we aren't just reading a story. We are encountering the risen and alive and very active and very capable Jesus Christ. The good doctor. He's still on the move. He's still healing and diagnosing and warning and encouraging and comforting. We enter the story... Uh, And it enters us. There's this sense that as we read this, we're going to see ourselves woven throughout. If I could just sort of show you a goal of of what I have in mind as I preach through this. Why are we doing this? Here it is. This is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Not just so you can gain more knowledge and depth of insight, but that your love would, would, would grow so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. Is there a better way than to just keep showing you Jesus, God in the flesh? So Luke's going to be phenomenal. Today is two birth announcements delivered in grand style and then two responses, two ways of responding to God's word. Trust and doubt. I had some alternative titles that I thought would have really drawn a crowd if if I had posted these on Facebook. One is How Babies Are Made. Um, I think that would have drawn a crowd. Uh, And then the other one I thought was uh, What to Expect When You Weren't Expecting. Uh, In the 90s, if you had children in the 90s, What to Expect When You Were Expecting was this huge book. Um, We have a a sort of reversal on, on that theme this morning because of these two women. Let me get your head around the word expecting for a minute. Little pro tip, if you haven't made this mistake, make sure, men and women of all ages, that if you approach a woman and ask if she is expecting, get that right. (laughs) Get that right. I mean, that's just one of those, you just double, then triple check your work, uh, you know, (laughs) kind of like really make sure, right? But when you say, are you expecting, most often we would tie that to someone who's pregnant. It's fun that we have someone expecting here in this room, at least one that I know of. And so there's filled with anticipation, right? And filled with like, yes, I am. And just all this excitement. But it doesn't have to center just around being pregnant. Are you expecting and what are you expecting? Could be a a wedding day or a new job or a new house or a new friend. Think about expectations for a second. Isn't it true that expectations can be exceeded? And isn't it true that expectations can lead to absolutely dashed hopes? This whole idea of expecting actually cuts to our deepest longings and some of our deepest regrets and pains. 
Regret is one of those things. Nostalgia, where you look back and go, man, I remember that picture and all that I was hoping for in that relationship, in that new location, in that job. And now here it is all these years later. And there's that pang of hurt that accompanies it. God sets expectations in motion through prophecy. It's predicting, no promising, future events that say all that's wrong will be made right. And this is so woven into the Jewish people that it it would be on their tongues. They would think about it regularly at feasts and festivals. That there is a Messiah coming. There's a Christ coming that's going to right the wrongs, set us free, heal our woes. You know, it's far more complicated living now than it was in yesteryear. Um, Let me take the prom, for example. The prom used to be that you just, you know, muster up the courage to ask someone to the prom, and if you didn't have that courage, then you asked her friend to ask her, and, and if you botched it, it didn't show up on the whole school's screens a few seconds later about how lame you are. It, just a few people kind of knew about it. Um, there's now something called promposals, which if you don't know, um, are these elaborate shenanigans that you have to do, and, and, and you have to, you know, you know, you already know from from your computer, like, in your screens, like, where you rank on that. You're like, I know what the top 20 were. I want to be at least in the top thousand that were ever done. And so anyway, it's this big elaborate thing. How about having children? Having children now, you you know, parents have to think, you know, do I even have the right apps to to, to raise my child? Um, How am I going to announce this? I mean, that's a whole deal now. Um, Where do I rent you know, a, a, a pink helicopter and a blue helicopter for the gender reveal. Um, we, we actually have someone. I found out this, this out this morning. But today, uh, somewhere around three and four on Facebook Live is the gender reveal of the Humphreys, right? So give it up for them. Uh, but, but here's the thing. Like, we never had to think about it. We looked at a botched thing. They're like, it's either a dinosaur or a child. Like, that's what the ultrasound told us. And there's no degree of certainty really what it is. Um, so it's just, it's just far more complicated. But let me say this to you, Humphreys, in all love, and to everyone who's stressing this, any and all creativity you have in announcing the birth of your child, which is a joyful, wonderful thing to put energy toward, any creativity that you have is derivative. God gave birth announcements for the ages. He never makes the top 10 list of best birth announcements ever because we just don't see it. But we're going to see it today afresh that, that God does birth announcements and everyone else gets second place or later. So let's talk first about John the Baptist. Before he was John the Baptist, he was John the baby, right? So he started off as, as a baby as well. And what I want to do in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, is I just want to sort of walk through some of these things. You can jot these things down if they're helpful. But here's the context. We have Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see quite clearly that this baby is born by the will of God. Isn't that true of every baby? Every baby is born by the will of God. The term unwanted pregnancy. I get it. I get why it's there, but it's a hideous term. Every pregnancy is by the will of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it mentions a priest named Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, and then verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, 
And both were advanced in years. Now, most of us know where this story turns, right? That there's redemption, that all these hurtful years, there's a baby coming. And not just any baby. It's a pretty big deal. But they didn't. They didn't know where or when or if the story would turn. And you know what? Neither do we. We live our life like them, day at a time, year after year, prayer after prayer, question after question. Where are you, God? We are completely yours. We're serving you. We have this shame attached to us. We have this deep longing for us. Do you hear us? Do you see us? Isn't it true that pain and suffering can lead to bad theology? Let me ask a question that I'm actually asking for feedback on. Church, what are some, what are some of the things that we can hurl at God? What are some of the things we can think about God? What's some of the bad theology that can creep in right in the midst of pain and suffering? And maybe if we would say it, we'd say because of the pain and suffering. We'll leave it semi Hypothetical, so it doesn't have to be your specific thing. But how can bad theology come from our pain and suffering? What are some of the specifics? Yeah, God, are you? Are you am, I, am I being hurt because because of sin? What would be true in this case? That's not the case. Like Luke takes pains to say, like they, they were living uprightly. Even, yeah. What else? Okay, so it's put on Elizabeth or Zechariah because of your lack of faith. You're not trusting God enough. Super common. Super common. You hated me, and so you gave me these parents. Yeah, absolutely. You're not for me. Or else I would have those other parents or the ones I can envision in my mind. What else? God helps those who help themselves. Which leads to some real practical things. I need to try harder. I need to hustle more. Why am I so lazy? Why can't I get it done? Yeah. What else? Yeah. Prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work. Totally. Interesting thought about this, about this story as we read it. <clears throat> the angel Gabriel says that God has heard your prayer. And yet I don't think Zechariah was praying for a baby when he went into the temple. I don't think that was on the forefront of his mind. Why do I know that? Why do I, why do I deduce that? Because that's not where his head's at. He's kind of shocked by the news and super, and totally doubts it and questions it. But catch this beautiful picture. That God holds our prayers, even ones we've forgotten. Longings that we had long ago that maybe we've stopped believing prayer even works. We haven't been faithful. We, we, we've stopped doubting long ago, but it was a prayer that was held for such a time as this. Man, what else? A couple more. Bad theology that stems from suffering and pain. God abandons us. He's just not, he doesn't have his eye on us. He doesn't care. He doesn't see. God's impotent. It's a loaded term with the thought we're thinking about, but it means he's not powerful. 
He can't overcome my barrenness. I've been barren for all these years. I'm done. It's too late. Yeah. It's up to me. Yeah, that is a that is a deep storyline people live with. In the end, it's all up to me. I'm all alone in this world. Here's what I want. I, I hope and pray. If you're part of a community group, um, we have some trusted companions. That's the theme of our community groups. I pray you would be an upright, trustworthy companion when you come to community group, by the way. And my prayer for you, church, is that you would peel back hypothetical and begin to offer your your story and entrust that to each other that we could pray and walk with each other it is so powerful to have the church building itself up in love by saying that's just not true you are not alone and i need to show you some of these tangible evidences of that that's not true that god doesn't see you and 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 to have those those messages put to us let me keep going What's accomplished in this story? Well, there's a birth announcement. There's a prophecy. There's a sign given in a miraculous birth. By the way, test me on this. We have a pretty elaborate nativity scene that we inherited. It's awesome. And it goes in this special spot in this armoire uh, that usually houses our junk. And we clear it out in this season. And try as I might, I can never find figurines for Zechariah, Elizabeth, or this baby. But as we'll see, super prominent part of the story. Another miraculous birth. Clearly the virgin giving birth gets the headline, rightfully so. Clearly Jesus gets the headline, rightfully so. But we've got a drummer boy in our, in our little thing. We don't even really know there was a drummer boy. But we know Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were just this key part of the story. Look with me at verse 11. And follow along with me. And there appeared to him, Zechariah goes into the temple. Context is that this is his once in a lifetime shot at drawing the lot to be able to go in and perform this worship event. And the angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and they will go, and he will go before him, he being John, him being Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord's people prepared. For the Lord, a people prepared. It's interesting to look at all the art kind of through all the centuries, and one of the things that artists get wrong a lot they didn't read their bibles carefully enough was angels right little plump floaty things often they're sort of effeminately painted like just sort of neutral you know and in the scriptures what you see is this that these are powerful creatures the most appropriate common response appears to be like fall down like you're dead 
either like just playing dead, I don't know, or like you have a heart attack. I mean, deep fear. And they're also messengers. They're messengers of God. Gabriel tells him seven very specific things. Do not be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. You will have joy and many around you will have joy. Think about how many people would stop right there and say, stop, done, I can ask for nothing more. I mean, wouldn't, isn't this the hope of most people? Like, if you think about most humans, what they want, not to be afraid, to have a family, and to be happy. So many people would just settle right there. The messenger goes on with these things. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with God's Spirit even from the womb. He is going to help ignite a revival back to God. And he, John, will go before him, the Messiah, this long-awaited one, in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way. Mind you, in this day, God hadn't spoken in over 400 years. The close of the Old Testament is a book called Malachi. That was the last time that God spoke to his people. He's breaking the silence. Put yourself there. On that day... This once-in-a-lifetime thing for, for this priest and to have this come back, how would you respond? Well, how did he respond? His response was fear and unbelief and spouting conventional wisdom. You ever say something and then feel dumb? Don't raise your hand. I know you have. Zechariah said something and then he became dumb, as in mute. He could not speak. He was involuntarily tongue-tied because of what he said. So don't miss this for a second. A righteous person, how do we know he was righteous? Not because he was a priest. We know he was righteous because Luke told us, man, him and his wife were living faithfully. They were following the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were being a faithful elderly couple. A righteous person in the center of the religious world, Jerusalem, in the holiest of all places, the temple, doing the holiest act of worship, did not believe God's word. Isn't that powerful? Makes you think that a preacher could be standing in a church on a Sunday morning, giving his life to God, and doubt could creep into the preacher's mind as he's proclaiming the gospel to others, not believing it himself. Doubt is just that sneaky. Feel the weightiness of the angel's response. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I sat with that for a little bit this week. So this priest, this paid professional from good stock, the line of Aaron, responds to God's word in doubt. Easy to read other people and say, you have a lot going for you to believe that this is God's word. How come you didn't believe? Let me point to us for a second. We have a lot going for us. Many of you I recognize because I see you week after week, so I can speak to those that I know well. We have the Old Testament. The Old Testament are promises made. We have the New Testament. Those are promises fulfilled. We have a community of believers, not just here, that lovingly lead us and, and guide us along, but 2,000 years of church history to witness the risen Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit as we open the Scriptures and read the Word, enlightening us. 
And yet so often we would say, if only I had a messenger from God directly. If only a miracle would just take place. God, if only you would, you would you know, sort of let, let this test be passed. So then I would believe. What we can see from Scripture is that's not always the case. Who is this baby? It's John the Baptist, cousin and forerunner to Jesus. He pointed out Jesus as Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How prominent is John? Mark opens his gospel with John as a man. John begins by speaking of the pre-existing eternal Jesus Christ there at creation. And watch this. Six verses in. Gets to John. And begins speaking of him. The one who would testify to who Jesus is. Matthew takes a few chapters because he starts with Jewish, Jewish genealogy, because it's very important to set that up. But three chapters in, guess who he starts with? John. And Luke goes from his pre-born existence, the calling that he got even in the womb. What was Jesus' assessment of John? Matthew eleven eleven. he says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than, than John the Baptist. We'd be tempted to read this text by saying there's two ways to, to respond to God's word. You could be Zechariah filled with doubt, or you could be Mary filled with faith. That's too one-dimensional, isn't it? I mean, that's not really ever how it is exactly. Is John an example to follow, or is he a warning to, to avoid? What, what do you think? For the most part, an example to follow, Right? And yet, this same John, we're going to get to this, he's about to lose his head for following Jesus. He has a major bout with doubt. So much so that he sends messengers, no small feat, to Jesus, saying, did I get this wrong? Are you the Messiah or is there someone else? So we're, we're all a little bit mixed on these things. I think I would do a disservice to you. I think I would actually possibly heap heavy burdens on you to just simply at the end of the day say, just be merry. Just respond. I'm the servant's Lord. Let it be done according to your will. Now, I think that's a great thing. I think let it be done according to your word. And you ought to print that up somewhere, put it on the dash of your car, you know, put it backwards on your forehead so you could see it in the mirror. I don't know. Whatever works for you, but, but, but just this identity that Mary has, I'm your servant, let it be done to me according to your word. Man, what a great response. But super easy for doubt to sneak in, super easy for the enemy to sneak in and go, that's not you. You have your doubt and you have your moments. What we see is these are real people. It's not clean cut to live in the kingdom of God and never have your struggles. So let me move on to the star and rightful center of this account context of Mary and Joseph is that they're engaged to be married. It's much stronger than our engagement. To break it would be more like divorce today than just breaking off an engagement. And a sign is given, this miraculous birth. Look at verse 28 with me. By the way, we said one of the struggles of Luke was that his familiarity breeds, breeds contempt, but familiarity also breeds complacency. Man, I've just heard this. I know where this is going. I know where the story turns. Listen with freshness. 
Verse 28, and he came to her and said, this is Gabriel, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Another birth announcement, another naming, another gender reveal. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This isn't just a birth announcement. This is a pronouncement, a declaration. Thus says the Lord. This is what's going to happen. And what's her response? Love it. Fear and faith. We know from these, because angels constantly are saying, don't be afraid. That's one of the first things out of their mouth. God doesn't just leave us in our fear. He comforts us. It's right to fear the Lord. It's also right to be comforted by the Lord. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will these things be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And there, and this is the sixth month with her, who, ha, who, who was called barren. Man, beautiful. Verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I didn't read it out loud today, but Zechariah had the same thing. How can this be? Mary said, how can this be? Why did one get a spanking, a little tongue-tying, a little like mini-discipline? Hey, you're going to not be able to speak until later on. And the other not. We don't know for sure, but here's what we could say. It seems that one how can this be rose from doubt and preaching conventional wisdom. By the way, conventional wisdom isn't a Christian, I think, because it constantly like points away from the things that God makes possible. My wife's really, really old. How can this be? And Mary says, how can this be? And it comes from a place of trust. How can this be? That's impossible. Or how can this be? I don't understand how this is going to happen, but I trust you. Two different, two different things. So we have a male priest in the temple that doubts. We have a youthful female commoner that trusts. Do you see the outsider-insider picture there? Who would you think would have gotten it right? Man, it would have been the paid priest close to God. The male in that culture. The older in that culture. It's reversed. It's everything opposite. The beauty is this, that God still delights in using the apparent hopeless and the least to confound the wise. That's why pride should never accompany being used by God. That should always be accompanied by humility. Don't you think that if God's using you in some great way, He's probably using you because people look at you and go, that person really shouldn't be doing this. That's the point. That God, that God would shine through. And who's the baby? The baby's Jesus of Nazareth, who most often today people worldwide just call Jesus Christ. It's not his last name, it's a title. 
And to show you sort of the impact, look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And the monumental worldwide impact of this child being born in Bethlehem is still causing a stir. Think about this. Jesus Christ, millions of people claim that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Millions around the the globe would say that they live a life devoted to Him. You ask who's the most important person in your life, they would say Jesus Christ. You would say, who would you credit for saving you, for turning you, for healing you, for transforming your very life? They would say Jesus Christ, amen? Amen. And here we are. Something in us leaps for joy. I'm getting goosebumps. Not because of my great preaching. Because of Jesus Christ. That's why. Let me invite the band to come on up. As the band comes up, don't check out. I invite the band up only for time's sake. But zero in. This is the most important thing of the day. Two ways to respond to God. On the surface, we think it's just belief or unbelief. There's always more to it. Here's the million dollar question. Ready? How do you respond to the word of God? How can this be? Or how can this be? That's impossible. Or I don't understand. But in my confusion, I'm going to trust and obey. This came so powerfully to me last night. And I would have missed it. But thinking on Mary, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. That's just such a beautiful, trusting statement. Unless we become like children in our just trust of the Heavenly Father, no one enters the kingdom of God. And yet even doctors can get in. We have these Advent bags that we read one per day leading up to the 24th. And the verse for last night that my wife chose weeks ago and it just happened to land on this day with this sermon in my heart and my mind. If I were to say Isaiah 40 to you, some of you would go, okay, I can kind of place what may be in Isaiah 40. There's a few familiar passages. Let me read a passage that you've probably heard. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You've heard that verse. The fixed word of the Lord. When there's a birth announcement, there's a prophecy attached to that. Better be a male. You better actually produce a baby. Or else that's a false prophecy. That prophecy was tested within nine months. But decades later, we'd be able to see, is this John really leading a revival? Is this Jesus really who he said he was? Well, friends, here it is 2,000 years later. And we're looking at these prophecies marveling. The word of God is fixed. Now watch the context of Isaiah 
chapter 40, before it says that the word of God will stand forever, it touches on John the Baptist. Ready for this? I want you to read, by the way. Jot down Isaiah 40, 1 to 11. That's what I read last night with this sermon in my heart. It's done me. Here it is. Here's Isaiah 43. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who's that a prophecy about? That's John the Baptist. Those are the very words he came out proclaiming. He was a man of the wilderness. People came out to him to get baptized. Jesus came out to him to get baptized. Then it says that the word of God will remain forever. Then we get to verse 9. Herald the good news. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs to his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. Who's that? That's Jesus the Christ. In this passage that we know God's word stands forever, there's John and Jesus put together prophetically. Here we see in Luke chapter 1 those same things. And what's at the center? Luke writing this so you can be certain. So you can know God's word is fixed. So it's left for us is how do we respond to that? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for eyes to see. I thank you for faith. Thank you for deductive reasoning and observation and thinking back on experiences. I thank you, God, for how the community comes together, pulls together, prays for one another. And God, how you enlighten and unfold the story in your time. God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us a heart that would say, how can this be? God, would you let us take comfort in the fact that you don't just kill people who in the temple are doubting your word. You don't fly off the handle. We see great restoration. Next week we'll see this prophecy that Zechariah gives. And yet, God, we long to just jump right to Mary. I'm your servant, God. I don't get it. But in my confusion, I trust you. I can't wait to see how this is going to play out. This has never been done before in history. But you found favor with me. I receive that. I walk in that. I live in that. Churches, we sing this song. It's a spin on Silent Night with some added words. Listen for the universal love and care and invitation of the good doctor. That it's his grace for everyone. 